from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan This Zach. is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, April 7th. Today, a deep dive into Georgia's controversial voting law. And is it allergies or COVID? So let's just start with who are you and what do you do for The Post? My name is Amy Gardner, and I am a political enterprise and investigations reporter on our politics team. Amy has been reporting on Georgia's new law that passed last week, its complicated origins and its future. The law was passed by Republican majorities in the state House and Senate of Georgia and signed into law by the Republican governor, Brian Kemp. We quickly began working with the House and Senate on further reforms to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. And it was passed in the name of election security. The bill I signed into law does just that. These Republicans were under tremendous pressure from their own voters who believed some of the false rhetoric that had been put out and is still being put out by former President Trump that fraud is the reason why Joe Biden won the election. There's no evidence to substantiate that accusation, but millions of Americans believe it because Republicans have basically told them to. And so this is a little bit of like, dog chases tail because now the Republicans are saying, well, we have to do something because our voters think the election was stolen. And it's like, well, the voters think the election was stolen because you guys have been telling them that. So that's the reason that Republicans gave to do something to address election security. And you saw all manner of proposals put into the legislative hopper in Georgia and other states. But Georgia really became kind of a poster child for this because it's got two Republican-controlled chambers and a Republican-controlled governor's office. And, you know, some of the proposals were incredibly controversial. We know that forcing counties to choose between Saturday and Sunday voting is targeting black voters who have used souls to the polls to cast their votes. One, to curtail early voting hours, to eliminate a Sunday or Saturday of early voting, which the black community in Georgia said was a direct assault on souls to the polls, this longstanding Democratic get-out-the-vote effort to draw black voters to the polls after church on Sundays during early voting. There was another proposal in the Senate to eliminate at-will absentee mail balloting. Those proposals died. There was a public furor. Corporate entities in Georgia weighed in privately. The Atlanta area chamber was involved talking to lawmakers, saying, no, you can't do that. This is not okay. And what emerged was what Republicans thought was sort of this kind of compromise bill that would have some, quote unquote, security measures in it, but that had eliminated some of these, what even Republicans admitted were sort of draconian measures that would, in all likelihood, curtail access for voters, particularly voters of color in metro centers around Atlanta. So, Amy, this seems like an extremely expansive law, but break it down for us. What does it actually do? 
So one of the ironies of the uproar around this law is that one of its key provisions is to expand early voting in Georgia, which is interesting and was meant, I think, by Republicans to show that they weren't trying to suppress the vote in this measure. There was a real concern about access, not just for Democrats, but for Republicans. On the other side, and attracting a lot of the criticism, are measures to limit the use of drop boxes for absentee ballots. They have to be inside a either an early voting center or a county election office, which makes it harder for people to drop off their ballot, for instance, after hours. Also has this potential to create crowds during early voting. It shrinks the window for voters to request mail ballots. Critics say that that naturally limits the window during which voters can participate. But the proponents say, actually, we're creating a deadline at the back end for the opposite reason, to ensure voters have time to get their ballot and get it back before the deadline of Election Day. The current deadline, they said, allows voters to request a ballot at a point in the cycle when they might not have the time to get it back by the deadline. So in a lot of these cases, there's two sides to the argument about whether the provision suppresses the vote or doesn't. Another provision that's quite controversial is the new ID requirements for mail balloting. You have to provide an ID number if you have a driver's license or a picture of an ID if you don't have a driver's license. That's a measure that a lot of studies have shown has a disproportionate impact on communities of color and economically poorer voters who don't necessarily have access to identification. However, Georgia has now said that they are going to provide free identification for anyone who wants it. But sorry, but what is the argument that that's actually, you know, would help more people to vote by requiring IDs? They're not arguing that requiring ID helps more people to vote. They're arguing that requiring ID allays concerns among voters about election fraud, that requiring ID is a good way to secure absentee voting. The problem with that argument is that there's no evidence that there was widespread fraud. There was no evidence that it was easy to vote illegally or fraudulently by mail in Georgia. So they're creating a solution without a problem. And what other provisions are in this very expansive law? Another really controversial measure that has gotten a lot of press is a measure that prohibits anyone from passing out food or water to voters standing in line. Basically, anyone providing any kind of sustenance like that in line has to be 150 feet away from the voting location and 25 feet away from any voter standing in line. And this has created quite an uproar. Critics have conjured images of particularly voters in Atlanta in Fulton County with a large black population standing in line for primaries during the hot months of the year Fulton County has a long history of very long lines because of insufficient polling locations and staff and resources. But the reality is also a little different than some of the rhetoric you hear about the line, what it's called the line warming provision. That provision is not that different from a lot of other states already, you know, their existing statutes. I asked one advisor to a top legislative leader yesterday 
fine, okay, so it's it's not different from other states, but why put it in? Why create the lightning rod at a time when your party's being accused of voter suppression? And the answer was because we saw actual instances of campaigns providing food trucks and campaign literature, and that's a form of electioneering. How much of this new voting law, how much of this is a knee-jerk reaction after Georgia you know, basically turned blue overnight? I'm not going to characterize it as a knee-jerk reaction, but Republicans have told me point blank that a lot of this is meant as a gesture to their supporters who believe the election was stolen. And so some of the folks who voted for this law actually admit, privately at least, the election wasn't stolen Joe Biden won Georgia fair and square, but we have to do something because if we don't, we might get primaried next time we're up for election. Our voters believe President Trump's rhetoric and we've got to do something about it. And you could certainly make the argument that that is not exactly a profile in courage. Um, There's one more provision or series of provisions in the measure that I want to mention, and it relates to this last question you ask, and that is the series of provisions that change who has the power to set election policy and govern local election boards. The bill gives the legislature vast new powers to do that, to replace election boards at the county level for cause if there's a complaint about the way the election is being administered. It also strips Brad Raffensperger, the secretary of state, of his role as a voting chairman of the state election board, which is the entity that set some of the emergency provisions that helped expand access uh, last year. I've been told by numerous Republicans that that piece that strips Brad Raffensperger of his power is a direct punishment for Mr. Raffensperger for certifying the election, for speaking out against President Trump's rhetoric. But I've also been told by some Republicans, look, two years ago when Stacey Abrams, the Democrat, lost her election for governor to Brian Kemp, she said it was basically crooked for Brian Kemp, who was secretary of state at the time, to be in charge of his own election. So they said, you can make the argument that we're doing what Democrats wanted to do two years ago. We're making it so that Brad Raffensperger can't be in charge of his own reelection in 2022. This provision seems like a really big deal. Is it? I think this one is the hardest one to to predict uh, in terms of its impact. The fact that the legislature can now appoint the chairman or chairwoman of the Board of Elections, and it's not Brad Raffensperger, doesn't actually change the partisan makeup of the board. Brad Raffensperger is a Republican. And in fact, the law contains a provision that that person has to be nonpartisan. They can't have given a partisan political campaign contribution for the previous two years. That hasn't been reported very widely. And the stuff about taking over local elections is scary because it means, theoretically, that a Republican lawmaker from rural Georgia who doesn't want Democrats to win and who wanted Brad Ravensburger not to certify Joe Biden's victory, despite the popular vote, could lodge a complaint about the way elections are run in Fulton County, where Atlanta is, and cause that local election board's leadership to be replaced. Theoretically, that's giving power to 
white Republicans elsewhere in the state to govern the election practices of a diverse Democratic city. And that's the part that has voting rights advocates really, really alarmed. It is reassuring to see that uh, for-profit operations and businesses are speaking up about how these new Jim Crow laws are just antithetical to who we are. You know, people are painting this new law as a revival of Jim Crow, especially Democratic lawmakers. The best way to deal with this is for Georgia and other states to smarten up. Stop it. Stop it. Amy, is that a fair depiction? I think the rhetoric surrounding this bill has eliminated some of the nuance that exists in the bill. I think it's more complicated than just saying it's a revival of Jim Crow. There's nothing in the bill or the law now that you can construe as a direct intentional effort to block black people from voting, like a poll tax or a literacy test which are the sort of hallmarks of Jim Crow voter suppression, right, in the South. But by the same token, it's entirely possible that some of these provisions will have the effect of making it harder for people to vote. And history tells us that the populations that have more difficulty surmounting these kinds of rules, like ID requirements, like making it harder to find a drop box to drop off your mail ballot, disproportionately affect communities of color. And now we're seeing a huge amount of backlash against this law. Corporations are criticizing the election policies. Delta, Coca-Cola, Major League Baseball relocated its all-star game. Why is now the moment when these companies are standing up? I think there was such a a large backlash from the voting rights community that it caught the attention of these corporate leaders, the CEO of Delta in particular, who penned a letter basically saying that the, the law that was passed was unacceptable. That was a real surprise to some of the lawmakers who had been working with corporate leaders and local business officials, the local chamber in Atlanta, on the changes that they were making to the bill. And I think what happened was when we saw the final version of the bill, Stacey Abrams's group, Fair Fight Action, came out very strongly to push back on this idea that this was a kinder, gentler version of the bill. That organization brought to light some of the details about the way that election administration was going to be changed That, in turn, prompted a bunch of headlines. I wrote a story, the New York Times wrote stories, lots of stories all over the country about this. And that, in turn, prompted some religious leaders, some faith leaders, to start talking about boycotts. I know that this is the headquarters of Coca-Cola, but Pepsi might be the taste of a new generation. Of Georgia businesses, if they didn't stand up and speak out against this law. We're going to find out. Right now, my coke is flat, and it's useless to the thirst of those who speak for justice. And then they did. So I think there was a real fear or concern, at least, amongst corporate leaders when the boycott word started getting 
used. And then the thing just kind of snowballed really rapidly. As you say, MLB pulling its all-star game, Delta, Home Depot, Coca-Cola, all weighing in. And then you saw similar actions by other corporate leaders in other states, like American Airlines and Dell in Texas, and the chamber, the main chamber organization in Arizona, weighing in similarly about measures that are being discussed in those states. So it's kind of like the issue rose up, ground up in Georgia, and then kind of jumped the tree line, to use a forest fire metaphor, into these other states. And now it's this big national issue that's going to define the debate over elections and voting as we head towards the 2022 midterms, I think. But Amy, you see a lot of the times these large corporations come out as a reaction to what's happening with mixed results. Is there any chance that this will actually ultimately impact or change anything in Georgia? I don't think that, you know, the legislature or the governor are going to start advocating for a repeal. They just passed it and they stand by it. I also think it's worth asking the question of just how sincere or serious the corporations are or whether they're, you know, giving a little lip service for the public or throwing a bone. I mean, the the Major League Baseball move was real for sure. And that is a very real economic impact. Although, as Stacey Abrams noted, you know, it's not ideal. Boycotts are damaging to all Georgians. And sometimes they're more damaging to, you know, lower wage workers than companies. And that's not good. So there's some debate about whether boycotts are even good for the cause. But there's definitely going to be a political impact. If you spoke out against this bill or defended the integrity of the elections and defied President Trump, which every statewide elected Republican in Georgia did in some way or another, the secretary of state, the governor, the lieutenant governor, you're vulnerable to a primary challenge. And President Trump is not being quiet. He put out a statement yesterday basically saying that this was a weak bill that didn't go far enough. So that's one very real impact. But then the second impact will be in the general election where Republicans who voted for this bill or signed it in Kemp's case are going to be vulnerable to a defeat in the general election because Democrats are going to do their best to capitalize on this issue and you know sway hearts and minds that this represents voter suppression and is bad for Georgia and is not what Georgia is anymore. It's a purple state going a little bit bluer every year. And I think that is a very real concern, not only for the statewide elected officials who are seeking re-election, the Republicans, but also for lawmakers who are in more suburban districts with a more purple or even blue-leaning electorates. And those lawmakers privately begged the leadership not to bring a bill forward because they knew they were going to have to vote for it or they'd get challenged in the primary, but that would make them vulnerable to the general. So that dynamic is very real. And that impact, I think, is going to be very real next year as the election starts unfolding. Amy Gardner covers voting for The Post. Rena Flores produced this story. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, 
there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. And now, one more thing. As springtime begins, people with seasonal allergies are experiencing their classic symptoms again. You know, the runny or stuffy nose, itchy, watery eyes, headaches, all of the things that come with, you know, the flowers blooming and and pollen season. But with that happening in the uh, middle of a pandemic, especially when you know, we've started to kind of see a bit of a rise in in coronavirus cases. A lot of people are now, again, kind of asking themselves, as they did last spring, you know, is this COVID or are these just my seasonal allergies again? That's Allison Chu, a wellness reporter for The Post and one of those lucky people who does not experience seasonal allergy symptoms. One thing that might help alleviate some of these worries is that there are key differences between the symptoms of allergies and COVID. So, for example, a seasonal allergies typically don't cause symptoms such as chills, body aches, and fevers, which are more commonly associated with viral infections. It is also uncommon for people with COVID to develop nasal congestion, which is one of the more common symptoms of allergies. As the weather gets warmer, Allison has been getting a lot of questions from people about their symptoms and how to tell if they're allergies or COVID. One of the questions that we get a lot is whether having allergies increases a person's risk of contracting COVID. And as of now, experts are saying there's no scientific evidence that people with seasonal or common allergies have a greater chance of becoming infected with COVID. We've also gotten questions about whether people who have allergies um, more in general should get vaccinated against COVID. And, you know, there really is no reason not to get vaccinated against COVID if you have allergies, unless you're allergic to a specific ingredient in one of the vaccines. And experts are also saying that if you've had past allergic reactions to vaccines or injectable medication, that you should talk to your doctor and work with them to develop a safe vaccination plan. We've also been asked if a person's allergy medicine could have any impact on their immune system's response to the vaccine. And what we know so far is that really any of the common over-the-counter allergy medicines are not likely going to have a significant impact on your immune system's response to the vaccine. But if you are taking regular high doses of oral or injectable steroids, you should talk to your doctor before getting vaccinated because oftentimes steroids in those forms are used to suppress the immune system. Hopefully this information provides some relief for people who are dealing with allergies as well as concerns about COVID right now. But you should see your doctor if you're experiencing allergy symptoms that aren't getting any better with normal over-the-counter medications, or if you're experiencing a high fever or any difficulty with breathing. And if you have concerns about your allergies and getting vaccinated, 
experts recommend bringing those concerns to your allergist who can hopefully find a safe um, vaccination plan for you. Allison Chu is a wellness reporter for The Post. Rennie Svernofsky produced the story and mixed today's show. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We are still looking for stories from people who immigrated to the U.S. What objects did you bring with you and what have you kept? Tell us by recording yourself and sending it to postreports at washpost.com. Be sure to include your name, where you live, and where you moved from. I'm Alexis Diao. Martine Powers will be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.